Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the global leader in legal recruiting and advisory services. I'm Mark Yakano, your host. I'm a managing director in the firm's Transform Advisory Services Group. When we started this podcast, we set out to explore mental health in the legal profession by talking to a wide variety of people, including mental health experts, clinicians, advocates, consultants, wellness program managers, and people who suffer from mental illness and are in recovery, either from substance abuse or being treated and managing their conditions. Today, we have the very special privilege of having Mark Schubert, who is the Managing Director of Guide and Thrive, powered by BHS. BHS is a Baltimore-based provider of mental health and wellness programs, and Mark and his team work with law firms and other organizations to develop and implement programs. First of all, Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, we're looking forward to all the pragmatic uh, advice and tips you're going to give us. Can you take a moment and just introduce yourself to our audience? Of course. Well, thank you for that warm introduction, Mark, and uh, appreciate this opportunity to share uh, some of our work and things that are, are happening in our space. And again, applaud you for uh, offering this, this episode uh, of the podcast. So just real quickly about me, I've spent my entire career in the uh, employer well-being space. Um, what that meant 10 years ago was I was working with all different types of industry on well-being programs, and I was really focused on getting people to their preventive screenings, um, doing health screenings at the workplace, blood pressure, weight, getting people to stop smoking, getting them to, to sleep more, et cetera. And uh, all the while, uh, the company that I work for, our firm BHS, our primary and core uh, business has always been the employee assistance program space, which we'll get into a little bit more about how that's all evolving. But um, as a young professional working through my career, uh, that was the mental health component of, of wellness was kind of off to the side for me. And then as many of us grow in our careers and, and start to see what's working and, and develop our philosophies, um, I took a position with the global asset management firm, T. Rowe Price, managing their, this is back in 2015, managing their global well-being and employee assistance program. While I was there, I would go to conferences and I would speak with consultants and I noticed more and more uh, coming up in terms of the conversation of mental health. And I tell this story because it's very um, pertinent to me and my career and where I am now was that I had this aha epiphany moment when I was on a, a, a webinar with a consultant and they were talking about the number of adults US in the US uh, that have some mental health challenge. And it's this exponentially increasing number. And then on the other side of the graph are the number of providers, the therapists, psychiatrists, et cetera, that are available to meet that demand. And at that very moment, I had kind of an aha epiphany that BHS and the infrastructure that they had built with 
whole team of master's level clinicians and really helping and handholding getting people from point A to point B was the was a tremendous uh, opportunity to come back to. Um, so, you know, I lost my I lost my uh, parking spot uh, for a year, but they did accept me back. And uh, it was uh, then that I really started thinking about, okay, we know that there are these EAPs out there, but there's very low utilization in these. Um, how can we better create access and engage more people? And if an EAP's utilization rate is 1%, but we know that roughly 20% has a di diagnosed mental health challenge, what do we do to create that, uh, to decrease that gap? Um, and that's kind of where I would would go to the next part of uh, the relevance of this this episode, which is how I then got introduced to big law and learned about the ABA pledge. And uh, sure. that's where let's, this work started. Let's, um, let's pause for a moment because I'm going to take you to the to the big law piece. But first, a lot of our viewers viewers that's 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 ambitious on my part maybe someday we'll have viewers but a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily familiar with the term eap even though it's been around for a long time sure. i think you pointed to a a fact that they're not always well utilized and in fact a lot of people don't even know that their employers or their health plans offer them so could you give the listeners uh, just a, a kind of synopsis of what an EAP is? Yeah, sure. So historically, EAPs have been around for, for many, many years, and it stands for Employee Assistance Program. Essentially, the core components of them are that they create uh, access for individuals who are looking to engage in short-term uh, counseling. So short-term appropriateness, these are relationship issues or issues that you're having at work, um, maybe some mild anxiety, things like that, where going and having three to six sessions with a therapist to help you work through these issues and get you back to work, feeling your best and being productive, um, that, that has been the primary purpose of an EAP. Um, there are other work-life services, so connection to uh, child care resources, elder care resources have become big with the sandwich generation uh, and everything going on there. Legal resources, financial resources, and all these things got built together into a uh, program that over time really became commoditized and more and more organizations uh, use them as what I would say a, a to check the box rather than really a strategic engagement in working with, with a workforce, keeping them engaged, retained, attracting them. And uh, th so it really kind of lost the value and the, and the high touch. And that's why many um, you know, health carriers uh, will have these embedded EAPs. But what we found is, so BHS is considered a very high touch EAP, carrier-based EAP, uh, it really is, it's so boiled down. Um, and what I mean by that is if you call and say, I'm having a relationship issue with my adolescent son and we're having a lot of trouble and, and I want to get in front of a therapist to kind of help us better communicate and talk through some of these issues. 
The EAPs that are out there, the carrier-based EAPs, what they do is provide you with a list of available providers. And then you as an individual who may be dealing with stress, depression, anxiety, or, or a, a more uh, chronic mental health challenge, when you call these lists and nobody gets back to you, um, which is very common, uh, that, that makes you give up on getting the help that you need and deserve. Um, so again, you know, th there are these employee assistance programs out there. What I think people, organizations, as they dive deeper into mental health strategies and, and the resources available to their people are realizing now these check the box programs are doing more harm than good. Raise a really good point, which, which goes to the issue of access to care, as well as the efficacy of some of these programs. Um, someone recently used a term with me called the ghost list. And what they meant by the ghost list is that employees would be given a list of providers that were either covered by the health insurance or, or recommended by the health insurance. But when you'd call, either those people weren't accepting new patients or they were, in many instances, no longer taking insurance. So the issue about being able to actually find care that's covered or enveloped in a program is it seems to seems to be its own big thorny knot in a lot of organizations. I would I would say not just in organizations but for everybody. And I think just based on the prevalence of of mental health challenges, all of us have somebody, a friend, uh, a family member, or a colleague uh, that is challenged. And ghost networks are very real. Uh, it, you know, the, you can go out to a carrier website and try to find a, a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist. Um, dollars to donuts for every 10 calls you make, you might get one or two calls back. And of those calls, they, they may not be accepting insurance. Um, and therefore, who can pay out of pocket to see these providers? So you just have an unmet need. Now, where things are going is that you need, it's a, it's a shame, but it's a truth that, uh, and what we do is we provide a concierge level engagement with a behavioral health clinician to help somebody engage them, create a personalized care plan, be an advocate for them to get the care that they need and secure those appointments on their behalf. Um, you know, there's so many people that even when they have a diagnosed mental health issue, upwards of 60% don't actually get the care they need to, to feel better or get better. Um, so again, without having an, a, a, a advocate helping you and matching you with the care you need and somebody with the know-how of the, of the behavioral health landscape, it is very, very difficult for people to, to get engaged. And, uh, you know, again, we need to think about innovative solutions to create access. And that's, you know, providers like BHS, the organizations that we serve, their health plans, their consultants, all working together to, to look at these networks and look at access and then really do something about it when it's when when it's documented that it's taking within a health plan in New York City uh, 10 weeks to get in front of a psychiatrist that that needs to be a group effort 
um, to uh, alleviate that and create better access for plan members. That is um, enormously helpful perspective. And I think it frames one of the central issues is how to get people to the right therapeutic resource and how to make sure that the right therapeutic resource is available. Now, I want to segue into the work you're doing in the legal profession. You know, it's been, um, it's been apparent by um, much of the publications you see, what you see on LinkedIn, the own work that my firm MLA is doing through this podcast and other thought leadership, and, and in large part due to the awareness that ALM is doing in its Mind Over Matter project, that um, there's a systemic problem with respect to mental illness and, and substance abuse in the legal profession. I think that the ABA Hazleton study, the death of several high-profile lawyers, and the level of awareness being shed on the issue by state and local bar associations has made it apparent that there is a serious, deep, pervasive problem, although I suspect we still don't really know how deep and pervasive and systemic it is. So my question is, how did BHS and you pivot to law in particular as an area of emphasis? Good question. So uh, being out in the field and, and talking with consultants about BHS and our products and our services, and you meet with a lot of people. And, and in summer of 2018, I had a consultant reach out to me on behalf of their client, which is an AMLAW 35 client, and basically say uh, they are all in on mental health. They have done a pilot where they've placed a, a, a clinician, a therapist on site in their DC office. It has been a raving success. Mark, can you help expand their efforts uh, both here domestically in the US and internationally? And of course, I, I said yes. But it was at that point, Mark, that I uh, learned about the ABA pledge, um, Patrick Krill in the 2016 study um, that, that showed the, the higher rates of uh, depression, anxiety, stress, substance misuse amongst the, the legal um, industry. That's where I started to really learn about it. And then by being um, in, introduced to those firms and consulting with them and, and understanding these challenges and where they're coming from, that's where I started to understand the opportunities and design programs in a way that I, that I collaboratively with the firms that we knew could make a difference, could create access to the highest quality of care. And while they're putting all of this emphasis on it, doing trainings and mental health first aid, that's great that you're out there having the conversation. But on the back end, these firms and their leadership, they need to be confident that they have superb resources available so that when they do raise awareness and an individual raises their hand and says, you know what, I am struggling, I am having a hard time, that they feel confident in the, the services uh, that are going to care for and steward the care for those individuals that engage. So that, you know, 2018 was where it really started to 
um, come together. And then, you know, of course, what you realize in the legal community is uh, there is a lot of um, the firms talk to each other about what they're doing. And so through that initial engagement, um, that's where, you know, you're, I was introduced to other firms, all, all saying we're all in on mental health. We have leadership that is dedicated and, and on board with this. We're ready to get moving. Now it's about deciding what that looks like uniquely at, at our specific firm and how we're going to design and build it and what platform we're going to build off of. Um, and, and from there, it, it, it truly is. There's best practices. There's a, there's a playbook for sure. But each firm is starting from a different place. Um, and each firm needs consultation about their strategy and, and how they design the programs, the communications, the marketing, the philosophies to move forward. So let's 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 take that apart a little bit. Sort of the view that I've formed is that there's there's kind of these sort of buckets of issues. The first one is creating an environment where people who are suffering from either some type of mental distress, well be it could be situational or clinical, or substance abuse, feel that they have a safe way to surface and ask for help to to not be stigmatized. Then there is the question of where are the right resources to guide them? How do they get to the right resources? So there's surfacing the problem and then there's directing the directing the people to the right resource. But then at, 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 at sort of underlying all that is how does a firm go about with the program design process? So your first engagement was with a firm that had already started down this road and, and you came in to help them expand, scale, and enhance the program. But there are a lot of firms who are still in sort of the early stages. And I guess, I guess, you know, like how do firms make the business case to merit the investment. How does that typically come about that firms get to the point where they're gonna make a real investment in mental health and wellness programs and, and high touch programs like the ones BHS offers? Do you have any insight into what the decision-making process that get them there? I, I do, I do. So, so first and foremost, um, when, when I first start speaking with a, a firm, uh, yes, part of my part of my objective is to understand where they are. So some firms have been building well their well-being platforms for years, 10, 15 years. Um, and you know, they had built these programs in place and we're talking about it, but then they were just ready to take it up a notch, take it to the next level. And then, as you mentioned, there are firms that are now hearing about this, are more recent, um, signees of the of the ABA pledge, et cetera. And they're saying, well, where do we get started? So when I go into them and I start consulting with them, I, I, I am saying, you know, our goals here are to encourage a culture of help seeking, reduce stigma surrounding mental health, enhance the support and provide access to high quality care. And then really the biggest part, which kind of goes into your question is partnering with all levels of the firm. And that's from the management committee, practice leaders, senior partners, 
managing partners, senior administrators, the HR benefits, wellness staff, the attorney development teams, um, and business services staff. And when it comes down to, okay, we've decided this is important, um, we're gonna make an investment. I think where, where things are really going is, um, and one of the things that I've noticed through participating in associate committees and, and, and attorney committees is just that, you know, even the law schools are talking about, uh, they, they have signed the pledge and they're talking about uh, well-being. I just saw an article on, on CNN talking about the bar um, association's ability to ask questions about mental health and pulling back on that. And where I'm going with this. Yes, that's a big, that's a big development, by the way. Yeah, yes, uh, I was following it in Virginia. Removing this, yeah, the states that are removing the mental health um, questions from from the bar application are winning a lot of um, praise and rightfully so because it is um, it is an inherent stigmatizer when that is part of the consideration as to whether you should be allowed to be a member of a bar. So that is a just for the general viewer listening ship that trend is a very positive trend. It's viewed by most advocates and mental health professionals as a real step forward. I couldn't agree more, and uh, you know, I, I just think that we, we are in a, such a great place right now where we are literally seeing progress being made, and that takes me back to, to your uh, original question, leadership and investment. So I think, you know, back in 2015, was this conversation happening? 2016 occurs, the, the study comes out, um, you know, known as the Krill study, but uh, that comes out and then the conversation starts going, as you mentioned, high profile um, suicides. And, and I think that, you know, it made its way up to leadership to them to acknowledge the, the challenges and the stresses and some of the ills of the career and say, we know that we know that we have a demanding professional environment. Um, it, it behooves us to invest in something where we can mitigate that and help individuals deal with those levels of stress. The, the other piece of it, which everybody looks to the future with is your young talent and where we're seeing it. And, and you know, I see a lot of ears perk up in my conversations and associate committees is especially with these law schools that, that are now adding uh, emotional well-being and, and, and self-care into coursework um, and making it part of the conversation there, you're getting these top recruits and these summer associates coming into these firms that they all covet saying, well, how are you going to help me um, be emotionally well throughout my career, which I know is going to be demanding. And being able to use this as a way to engage and attract and retain uh, that talent is extremely important to the future of these firms. And I think that it's also it's also goes to the core of one of the big, big, big findings in the Krill study or the ABA Hazelton study, which was surprisingly the most at risk population for depression, anxiety, substance abuse or lawyers who've been out of practice less than 10 years with people in the two to three to four year uh, range of practice being especially vulnerable. 
So I think that resonates real well with what you were saying about as law as law schools get more attuned to teaching these skills, and as as people begin to look at those programs as an element of what they should consider in terms of a culture they should join, it's really highly relevant. I agree, and our conversations and our work when we dive in with uh, attorney development and the associate development teams, um, it, 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 we've talked a lot about some of those bad habits or what those students are coming into the firm with and how we can help them more quickly uh, address and get better uh, coping methods, you know, big thing around sleep um, and how they can have some level of balance when they are in a position as an associate where they are really, you know, handling a, a high volume of work. Uh, so again, you know, you, you kind of ask, where does the investment and where does the leadership support come from? My my comment on that at the at the highest level is that the firms are acknowledging that there is an issue there, uh, and they are just like any other smart firm or industry. Your people are your are your best assets. They are your producers. Let's do what we can to help them and take care of them and their families so that they will be here longer and, and producing for the firms and that they are happy uh, where they are. So I was at a event, Momentum Events, put on a uh, wellness in the legal profession summit. And one of the speakers from the law firm made an interesting observation. Um, her comment was kind of wry in that when doctors need a will, they go to a lawyer when lawyers want to start a wellness program, they go to a conference room, um, <laughs> which, which I think I think there's an element of truth there. But but it sounds to me like there's also a shift in thinking in that the, the law firms are looking to bring in some outside expertise to to begin to address the, the these deep, compelling, and systemic issues. That they're not just going to the conference room anymore. Has that been your observation in terms of a trend line? Yeah, so you're you're gonna like hearing this, and I think this is very positive for for the audience here. So one one of our services, when you hear us talk about Guide and Thrive, um, Guide is you know the the concierge team that is available telephonically or virtually to help get individuals take them from point A to point B and get connected to care resources. When you hear me talk about Thrive. That is our on-site programming. So we we position these, we call them Thrive Consultants, but they're you know, counselors, coaches, and we'll put them on site in our in our clients' offices. Um, so about the excitement and getting everybody involved, what, what we do is when we start working, um, there's obviously the master firm culture, right? But then there's unique cultures in each office. So the New York office is different from the Boston office, is different from the LA office. But what we do is for each, each office, we're gonna place one of these consultants in, we do a, a discovery dive. And what I found to be so interesting is the discovery dive started with, you know, some local HR and attorney development representation. Uh, a client, another AMLAW um, 35 group that we are have, have onboarded and are going through this process of placing these consultants. Uh, when it came time to do their culture dives, 
we had 10 to 15 representatives from the managing partner, um, diversity and inclusion, HR, business partners, benefits, et cetera. We had representative stakeholders from across the firm. And when I tell you getting them, it, this was not pulling teeth to get them to come and participate in this. They all understand the value of it and they can see the practical application of it. And we get on these calls and you know the, the collaboration, the juices are flowing. We use the calls to understand what the culture is like and literally how we can position our consultants to work on you know, whether it's with a specific group getting in and doing some, some service with a litigation practice or getting in and doing um, you know, meetings with the associates, et cetera. And all of those uh, stakeholders all have you know, ways where they, they believe the consultant can engage and help the firm. And not only that, because we involve the, the, all of these representative stakeholders, the business, so to speak, not just the HR initiative, um, we, we start creating uh, networking opportunities for the consultant right during the sourcing and candidacy phase. Um, so that they start to build relationships. And uh, again, you know, what I've noticed is just over the last uh, six to eight months, you know, the willingness to, for the firms and these stakeholders to be part of this um, and be part of the experience and the selection and then the ongoing relationship and engagement is unlike anything I've seen in my, in my entire career in the, in the well-being space. Is there an understanding or acknowledgement by the firms that their culture impacts everybody within the firm and that the, the inherent characteristics that make the profession stressful also can have an impact on staff and, and when they build programs that, that the needs of or potential needs of the staff should be considered? All of our programs are for the attorneys and staff. Um, okay, and and that we would not we would not leave the staff out of this um, because they are part of the culture and part of the organization. And they have, you know, we we talk so much about uh, needs within the the attorney population, but I mean, just the statistics on on the general population uh, relative to challenges and needs with behavioral health, everybody needs it. How we might engage in our and how we go in to speak with a room full of partners and how we might engage with a, a business or operation staff um, are different, sure. Um, but at the same point, all of our programs are available to all, um, both attorneys and staff. Can you give me an idea as to how firms tend to stand up programs I've heard, you know, firms that start with some type of group goals, such as a walking challenge or some type of, you know, activity to generate awareness. And then obviously I spent some time last week and I spent some time in the, in, in, in the journey of this podcast with people at firms that have done some very, very, very significant and, and, and big structural things from meditation, to coaching, to wellness, to uh, embedded clinicians. How does a firm that may not be an AMLA 35 firm, might be, you know, an AMLA 200 firm or even a regional firm 
where is the typical place where they get started? Understanding that they don't necessarily have the human capital or the financial wherewithal to, 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 to sort of jump in in a big way. And maybe that it isn't even right to start with a big swing, even if you do have the resources. Maybe, maybe you know, starting with um, some smaller initiatives is the best way. Can you give some shed some perspective on that? Uh, again, it, it's so interesting because every firm we work with is different in terms of where and how they want to get started. But I, I have my general um, recommendations, right? So. First and foremost, you do need leadership buy-in. So the the firm have they acknowledged the the challenges of the industry of the profession, uh, and are they willing to shine a spotlight? Right, and that that is a philosophical thing for the firms and the leadership uh, there to consider. If the answer is yes, this is something that is important to us. We see the bigger picture here. Uh, we are going to move forward with something. The first thing that I, that I I say is uh, that you have to create education and awareness because not everybody ha has explicitly heard of the pledge or knows what's going on. So th that's where you can start with these kind of baseline conversation starters, which are programs like mental health awareness. So you get uh, you invite individuals from the firm in. And in that you're having conversations really about, you know, why are we talking about mental health? Um, you know, there's the general landscape, but then there's also the legal industry considerations. You talk about how does it manifest itself in this specific environment? And then this is the whole uh, behavioral health first aid, the are you okay programs. If we can teach individuals not to be clinicians, but to look out for their colleagues, family and friends and say, see some of the warning signs maybe of somebody that's having a challenge um, and be able to empathetically uh, address them and talk with them and be knowledgeable about resources that they have available. So like that, that can be the first part of a, a conversation and get the get it moving within the firm. But if to do that, you also have to take the step to say, if we're gonna shine a spotlight on this and we're gonna be out there talking with our group about it, talking why it's important, providing this some of this training, um, you, you ought to be um, on top of, okay, well, then people are gonna raise their hands and say, I need help. What are the resources? And that's where I get back to where I'm seeing some of these firms now, they have taken that step and they think they've got a, a EAP and then, and then they hear from a senior partner, okay, I came and took this training, I'm having trouble. I called the EAP, I got a list of three providers and the whole thing was just a terrible experience. So when you, when you start to get into it, you do have to think bigger picture, not only am I gonna do some education but things like policies, so return to work for somebody that might need to um, step out for a period of time to deal with substance misuse, right? And then the programs themselves, the resources that you would be um, saying are available, are they are they um, subpar, substandard, or does the firm really feel confident 
that if somebody raises their hand, they're going to get the help they need and they're going to have a good experience doing it. So you have, you need leadership buy-in, right? Always. Then you need to create a culturally ready atmosphere through education and outreach, if I heard you correctly. Correct. Then you have to work out some of the mechanics of policy and process, if I heard you right. You did. And just to go back to your second piece, communications and the conversation, when it comes to, to mental health, it cannot be one and done. So again, we work with our clients to make this an ongoing conversation um, within the firms. But I, I just wanted to mention that this is not set it and forget it. This is evolving. The conversation evolves. Um, you know, right now, for instance, right, coronavirus is out there. You know, these international law firms have people flying to and from. Um, so we've just issued some some uh, uh, some communications out to their population. And one of the pieces is we know that people are feeling anxious and unsettled about this. Um, if you are, you can connect with BHS to get in touch with your your care concierge. So again, I just always want to emphasize. You know, when it comes to this, it is it is not just a one and done communication. And from a firm perspective, your internal marketing and communications team, what type of resources do you have there to make it a priority that this would be an ongoing uh, topic of, of conversation and communication? The phrase I like to use, it's an endeavor, not an event. You got it. Um, it, it it's, a, it's a process and a journey and it's a trip. It is not sort of a party. It's an, it's an endeavor rather than an event. And I think that the final point you made, which, which is you have leadership buy-in, you begin this endeavor, you start to put the structural elements of policy and process in place. And then in order for this program to gain momentum, you have to be ready to deliver when people raise their hand and seek help. There has to be some efficacy there in getting them to the right, right types of resources or else the programs are really gonna lose its credibility. Was that a fair sort of summary of, of, of where you, the, the tour you took me on? You nailed it. Um, the work you're doing is compelling and it, it, is, um, it is clearly, I think, a more bespoke and uh, rigorous approach than the traditional sort of view, well, we have an EAP without any real sort of uh, depth and exploration as to what exactly that EAP can do and deliver. And I think there are lots of war stories of people who have called their EAP in distress and really ended up not getting any recommendations or not getting any any therapeutic advancement. So uh, the work that BHS is doing is, is important, and I know that um, the firms have made the investment have been very pleased. Before we go, can you just give one or two examples of firms that have engaged BHS and what they've been able to accomplish in terms of you know enhancing their culture, creating better access to care for their for their attorneys and staff and, and, and just a few success stories? Sure, uh, well, there, there are quite a few and, and we're very proud of it. 
Again, from, from my career perspective, uh, 10 years ago, we were doing on-site things in wellness. We were putting coaches or nutritionists on-site in these organizations. The problem was, in, in my view, we were these were presented as HR programs and we didn't get the type of utilization we wanted. And then we lost the investment and the program stopped, right? So I, I learned from that earlier on in my career that when I started working with these firms, we had to make sure that we were getting access to the business and that we were providing value to the business. So what I was mentioning earlier about when we do these discovery pieces and we involve our clients and their stakeholders in the selection of these on-site counselors, which we call Thrive Consultants, um, part of it was, okay, get some skin in the game from the, the managing partner and the attorney development diversity and inclusion people. They're, let them be part of selecting who these people are because once a candidate's selected and we put Jasmine or Shirley or Simon on site as, as that person, we need to go back to those stakeholders and say, hey, I'm here now, how can I help? How can you get me connected into um, different pieces of the firm where I can provide value? And that has been part of the, the secret sauce is that we've immediately made sure we've made good on those connections. And that's how we've been getting audience in front of attorneys, counsel, associates, business staff. So a very real example, we've got a, a client that's got an engagement in their Los Angeles office, and we've been working very hard with the um, attorney de associate development, attorney development on the topic of burnout um, and, and what that is and what that is in and how it manifests itself in, in the high pressure uh, legal environment. And through our, our consultants talks, one of the things other than going in and doing a presentation was you know, we want to actually give them things that they can utilize in reality uh, that will help them feel better. So what came out of, of partnering with that associate group um, and doing those burnout talks uh, was, okay, you know, every, every Tuesday, Wednesday, to start the day at 10 o'clock, um, we're gonna host a meditation. And so our counselor, Jasmine, will lead a, a room full of associates in a 10 to 15 minute mindfulness meditation exercise to get their day started and ground them and so that they can be refreshed and attack the day. And Mark, the feedback that we've gotten on this and just the, the um, attention within the firm has been so positive. And, you know, we literally have heard from the associates how this has just helped them kind of refocus and get back on track on things. And it really is being there and having that person on site and having that connection that not only helps groups of individuals, but if there is a particular attorney or business staff person that's participating in that group that needs some more one-on-one -on -one attention, they can also do their one-on-one -on -one work right with that right with that uh, that consultant in the firm. So I think it's this this happy medium of going out and doing group related activities and exercises. And another big one is sleep. 
um, and, and how to help individuals with that. And then use that to get one-on-one -on -one engagements for those that, that are ready to you know, work on, on things at a more individual basis. But what I, where I'll leave you is, you know, we have engagement across all levels of the firm, from senior partners to business staff to first year associates. Um, we are seeing that everybody has a, a demand um, for these services. And uh, again, they're finding the relationships and the value of it uh, to be convenient, accessible, and ultimately helpful for them in their careers. Well, I guess one of my takeaways of the last few days and, and something you just alluded to is helping people realize in order to speed up, sometimes they have to slow down is an essential element of wellness. So sleep, meditation, breath work may slow you down, but in the end, it keeps you going longer and um, fresher and, and with a better perspective. Uh, Mark, you've been a terrific guest. Um, for you listeners, uh, my, my, my guest today has been Mark Schubert from BHS. He, uh, the program that he manages is called Thrive and Guide. Mark, would you like to share with our listeners your contact information in case they want to reach out and learn more? Sure, absolutely. And uh, just to be the brand police, it is Guide and Thrive. Uh, my direct email address is M as in Mark Schubert, and that's S-C-H-U-B-E-R-T at bhsonline.com. You can get in touch with me uh, there. And then our website is www.guideandthrive, all one word, .com, guideandthrive.com. And out on our website, we've got um, overviews of our services, how we partner with groups, uh, as well as information about our team and our mission, which is to create uh, personalized uh, direct access to behavioral health and emotional support uh, for individuals um, and no issue too big or too small. We know that there's a lot of people out there that may be having a hard time. There's also a lot of people out there that are, are feeling great but maybe they just want to feel better or learn more about themselves. So we always say no issue too big or too small. We're here to help everyone be better, feel better, and, and live their best lives. That sounds terrific. Mark, thank you so much. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.